When I get out on the water, I'm going to row as hard as I can, as fast as I can, every time, make sure I maximize my time with getting as much sleep as I can, my diet, making sure I'm eating the right things and when I'm eating the right things. So when I get out there, what I bring to a team is I'm going to be the machine to get you across. What is this record that you're going for? I will be the only female in the history of the world to have circumnavigated in a rowboat. Back to back to back, I guess. <laughs> in America, ocean rowing is not a big thing. Total, I think there's like 1,300 people in the history that have rowed oceans. So it's not a very big community, but we really want to bring that awareness out there like, hey, this is here. It is really cool. Look at what's possible in terms of just another endurance sport that's out there and what's possible. If you want to put your mind to something, I mean, clearly you can do it. Welcome to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and this is the place where we share stories of people looking, finding, and living their purpose. Time and again, year after year, we continue to hear the unfolding of amazing lives shared on the show. And it's always so cool when we connect with a YT listener who is finding great purpose in life and willing to share. Jamie Linker reached out a few weeks ago to introduce herself, and that left our jaws on the ground. This woman is living off the front of adventure and fueling it with a purpose of service and an attitude of health and well-being for all, including herself. Jamie has been an extreme adventure athlete for over a decade, starting an obstacle course racing and now a world record holder as an ocean rower. Jamie is the first U.S. female to row both the Atlantic and Mid-Pacific Oceans and is working towards the next record-breaking project for the summer of 2024. Her team will become the first to embark on a circumnavigation attempt of all three oceans, starting with the Indian Ocean, then the Atlantic Ocean, and ending with the Pacific Ocean. Jamie and her teammate Owen will row for several causes, including eating disorder awareness, which is close to Jamie's heart and her life experience. We know that pain transmuted is fuel for a purposeful life that can serve many. And by utilizing her own battle with eating disorders, Jamie is committed to facing her fears so that others may benefit. And we're so grateful to have her here with us today, bringing this endurance adventure sport and her purpose to the show. Jamie, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. It's an honor. Uh, like I told you before, I listen to a lot of your stuff while out on the boat. So it's really cool to come back and be a part of your show. So <laughs> That is so cool to think that, we, that we've been out there with you. That's wild. And I have so many questions about this sport. And I love when you know, we expand that reach of, you know, what it means to be an endurance athlete. And it just, you can find it in so many different areas. I want to know before we get into all that, like, let's take it way back. Like how, like, how did you get to this point? Because it's a sport that isn't, you know, I, I guess in grade school or in middle school or in, or in high school, maybe even college, but how do you get to this point of being an endurance athlete to where you are today? Uh, that's a great question, BJ. Um, really, it was, I got sick. So when I was younger, I was an athlete, um, normal sports, you know, basketball, volleyball. Um, I did gymnastics when I was younger. Uh, but then when I got into high school, I developed an eating disorder. And so I was never healthy enough to um, participate any longer in sanctioned sports. So through that, you know, got sick, got hospitalized several, like three times. The last time I got sick, 
I knew that I had to do, make a change. Otherwise, I wasn't going to survive. So I needed to find a way to keep me accountable. And I always loved training and working out and athletics. So after being out of college or high school, you don't really just, I mean, unless you're doing like, you know, city league or something like that, there really aren't sports to get into. And that wasn't really what I was focusing on. So I got into OCR racing because um, I only have, um, at the time, 67% of my lung capacity because I was born with debilitating asthma. So I had to be very selective in what I was doing um, because I just couldn't run consistently and there just weren't enough medications to help with, you know, asthmatics like they do today. And so um, did that and I really loved it. You know, growing up, we always did obstacle courses with my grandma. So it was perfect, like the nice mix of the two, which still offered a challenge and it kept me accountable, which let me go to the gym and keep me accountable training, which kept my food and eating um, adhering to that. So it was just kind of like I'd have to sign up for races in order to keep me training, which would keep me accountable for my food. But after a couple of races, it was so fun, but it wasn't giving me the type of challenge I was seeking. So over time, I just sought out harder and harder and harder races and that's kind of what landed me here was seeking out some of the world's hardest events. <laughs> and it, that, thank you for sharing that. I think that gives some, some really good, uh, good perspective. It sounds like you have a no limits mentality. Would you agree? Very much so. Yes, very much so. And usually anything that anyone says you can't do, oh, you're, you're right. I'm going to go do it. So. <laughs> What was your first introduction to ocean rowing? Was it freshwater rowing or did you go right into the ocean? So funny story. I had actually just finished uh, Spartan, uh, their first uh, summer agogi. And the community of friends that I have been a part of and built over these years are just, they're my family and they're wonderful. So they actually reached out right after agogi in uh, 2016 and said, hey, I found the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Let's build a team. And I said, ooh, please pick me. And they said, yes, of course. Needless to say, we tried to row in 2017 and the team just kept getting sick. So we weren't able to pursue it. So I kept pursuing it. So what happened was, is I reached out over the years, um, had tried to build a team, didn't work, reached out to the race organizer, Nikki, um, with Atlantic Campaigns and said, hey, you know, I've been trying to do this for years. Do you guys have like an alternate list? And she said, and as a matter of fact, I do. And there were two people she connected me with. And one of them was Dave Dunk. Uh, and he needed a teammate and he's from um, England. And so we hit it off. And that was in 2020. Uh, we were supposed to go start training for 2021. But COVID happened. So I never even saw one of these boats until 2021 when I went and moved in with him and his family for a whole month in May to train. And we had the um, race five months later. So it was just kind of like, I just signed up for events. And I'm like, okay, let's go do it. <laughs> what was the event that you talked about previously? The Ago Agobi? What was that? The Agogi. So Spartan um, Racing, they had Death Race, as you guys have probably heard of Death Race, which was my dream race. 2016 was the last one that they did like officially in the old caliber style. Um, and I got in a motorcycle accident on my motorcycle. So I could not participate in that event. So as soon as they announced a Gogi, which is the 60 hour endurance event, which was kind of like a hybrid from a 12 hour that they did, which is just a 12 hour grinder, which is my favorite event to this day. 
Um, and But it was not quite death race because my body wasn't he- um, physically able to do that after the accident. So I signed up for that. And it was um, just 60, uh, 60 hours up in Vermont. And it was kind of like backpacking, camping, survival all put into one, learning skills. Um, and ever since then, they've done winter ones, they've done summer ones, they've done ones in other countries. Uh, it's it's really nice for people if they want a little bit more of a challenge, um, something more than the 12-hour event, but not quite death race. It kind of is a introduction on just learning some survival things in a grueling situation. So, I haven't heard of death. Why, yeah, what, why yeah. do they call it death race? Yeah, tell us about the de- tell us about the death race. What is what's that all about? Because I haven't heard of that. I mean, okay. I've heard of the Georgia. I think it's the Georgia death race, but I think that's a trail. It's, it's not obstacle. Yes, yeah, totally different. Okay, so that's the only race that I've heard of. That <laughs> there's more. Apparently, there's more races that have the word death in it. Um, tell us about this one. Yeah, so um, Spartan death race uh, originally when it came out is it's you knew where you were going but you didn't know what you were going to do there. You didn't know what you'd have to bring. You didn't know what you would encounter and you would just show up and you would be stuck in grueling physical feats that you'd get, you know, it was essentially just to test you to see if you were going to break or not. And I love the idea because the slogan used to be, you know, um, you can die. Like if you went to the webpage, it's like, you can die at this event. And I'm like, yes, like, let's do this. Um, And it was just, the stories are amazing for what they'd put you through. Um, one of them, let's see, one of the stories, because I haven't done it. Um, they had br- they brought it back in a different format than what it used to be um, before, uh, since after 2016. Uh, but it, they would do, for example, um, since 2016, the new format, they did like a 10 hours worth of burpees. For example, you just do 10 hours of burpees. Um, one of them back in the day before <laughs> that format, you would have to like orienteer somewhere in the winter or in the summer, um, go through like leech ponds. You'd have to do blood route, um, which is a route up in Vermont on Joe DeSena's property. It's like 26 miles or something like that. And they'd make them do it barefoot, like in their underwear, <laughs> like just like, but it's just like, it's the whole thing is to break you mentally and physically and see what, what you can withstand. And I love that type of challenge. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of death race and they have it now every winter and summer, um, up in Vermont. Yeah. Uh, well, I can see why you were drawn to the ocean, um, and all the solitude <laughs> out there and the constant rowing for thousands of miles, uh, that will definitely bring you to the brink. But, it, um, but I'm still not seeing like, where do you even gather the skills to be a rower where somebody says, yeah, come on my team. Like, how do you even get that cred or is it just rolling over because they know your, your history of succeeding at these big events? Um, I honestly, I don't know. So when Dave and I, to, for the first, the Atlantic race in 2021, we met and it was just like, Hey, I want to do this. He wanted to do it. He had a boat and he had a previous partner that, uh, canceled on him. And so he was told he needed to have a two man team and couldn't do as a soloist. That was his agreement with him and his wife. And so he was seeking a partner and we just had a conversation, uh, to see if we, you know, personality wise would work out and, then and it, it did. And so then it was just, you know, making sure. So to do an ocean row, you have to hit certain metrics. You have to have so many training hours together. You have to do all the different drills of like para anchor, man overboard, like the ocean safety drills to make sure you know what you're getting into ish. 
Um, and then you have to do, you have to get certified for like a VHF radio and, um, different uh, communications out there and uh, ocean safety and navigation courses and things like that in order to go in the Atlantic campaign sanctioned events. So we did all of the requirements and we trained together and we got along. And so we're like, yeah, I guess it, it works. Um, trust. Uh, I know that's where one of the biggest breaks in teams usually is though, is with team dynamic. But myself, there's really nothing I've ever set my mind to that I can't do. And so I like to find that breaking point because I don't want to fail at something. So it's like, okay, let's find where that breaking point is going to be or where I'm going to fail and let's push past that. So um, I guess to me, there was never any doubt, but I also train six to 10 hours a day. It used to be 10. Now it's like six to eight um, to make sure I'm physically fit to do any of these endeavors I might find. So you have the, so this is good. Uh, so you have the trust and you have the, you're confident in yourself, but this element of adding this other person puts a lot of, I shouldn't say pressure, but there's an unknown there. Even though you had the conversation, you're working together with him and I'm sure he's not, or maybe is the only partner you've ever had. But how do, how do you work with that? Knowing you're so confident and purposeful and, and mission driven, but you're now relying on someone else to tow half the deal as well. So my big thing with uh, trusting another teammate is knowing, you know, we've done the courses together, you get out on the water and I can see, you know, I would say I'm a pretty good judge of character when it comes to what a team dynamic needs, you know, so where the inefficiencies are going to be lying between you and your teammate, I'm going to be, you know, a machine. That's what I train to be. When I get out on the water, I'm going to row as hard as I can, as fast as I can, every time, make sure I maximize my time since that's what I specialize in is like time efficiency. So I maximize that with getting as much sleep as I can, my diet, making sure I'm eating the right things and when I'm eating the right things. So when I get out there, what I bring to a team is I'm going to be the machine um, to get you across. And where he had the boat, you know, he knew everything about the boat. So we tested, you know, um, the water maker when we're out there, you know, he had done so many more trainings on his boat and knew it inside and out. So where we kind of had a different um, roles on the boat, I think the first time that's kind of what solidified the comfort in a teammate. Um, however, when you're out there, you know, the first ocean took us 51 days. You don't know what your teammate's going to do after a week at sea, um, you know, two, a month at sea, you know. So personalities do change, but I think the compartmentalizing is what I do. And I don't focus on it. I'm like, I've got a task at hand. This is what I'm going to focus on. This is what I'm going to do every day, you know, every two hours since we're on a two hour rotation. And that's what I focus on. So breaking it down into those small increments makes it manageable to have another teammate and not have as many upsets in terms of personality um, disputes that happen or, um, people like not understanding the conditions that we're getting in. Cause most of the time, your first ocean row, obviously, you've never encountered those things. You've never encountered, you know, the big seas that we encounter. Uh, in our training for the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge in 21, the biggest, the biggest waves that we got into were six feet. And we were like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. Like, how do we get out of this? Like, we can't, you know, we were like locking ourselves in our cabins and we called uh, Dawn, the lady who does all of our training, and she's amazing. Uh, over in London, and she's an ocean rower herself. We're like, we can't get out of this. Like, it's so nasty outside. How are we going to move? She's like, 
just get on the oars. You guys are going to be fine. About, you know, half an hour later, the weather was fine, but we were scared to death. And I think after the third day on the ocean, we were in like 20 foot waves. So we're like nothing. And I mean, you can't be prepared, you know? So what we thought was intense, it was nothing compared to the open ocean. So you just kind of have to trust in your skills and understand your teammate, trust them. And then you just kind of work together through it because you just can't train for what you're going to really encounter out there. Did you have any uh, fears going into, you know, this, this, the first event you did was 2020 or 2021? 2021. 2021. So tell us about how long that, that was. It sounds like it took 51 days. Um, And did you have any like fears of these unknowns? Like, you know, what a 20 foot wave could look like or marine life or the boat overturning? What, uh, what did you need to overcome in that department, um, either during the event or before? No, that's a great question, Jess. Uh, so there are the the biggest thing that I always say, even at that time and now, still reigns true now, is the lead up to the ocean and getting on the water is the hardest part for me because um, you've got to worry about raising money, which is the I am terrible at it and I need to get better because it's been really horribly hard for me. Uh, But you raise money, so that's really hard, making sure you have the logistics, making sure you've got the training down and all the mandatory uh, requirements to be able to go out there. Um, And then making sure, like mine is my food. Um, I'm the first one who's ever had to make their own food because I can't just go and buy freeze-dried meals since I'm either allergic to half the ingredients or mentally I can't eat half the ingredients. So I need something that I can trust out there. So I am sponsored with Nutristore Foods, which is the world's largest um, dehydrated food or freeze-dried food company. And so they, um, they donate all of the food for me. So I have to custom package and measure out um, my food for my meals, what I'm going to make, so I can have those every day. Um, so to me, where that's the biggest challenge is like managing my eating disorder and managing that while I'm out on the water. All the other stuff to me is trivial. You know, I mean, big waves, you're going to get on them, you're going to have to get through it. That's not a worry to me. You know, um, I would say marine life, I keep my boat in the in the boat, like my butt in the boat, I'm not getting in the water. And so I'm like there, I'm fine. I'm safe in the boat. No shark can get me in the boat. We're fine. Um, so that like helps with at least that fear of the element in the water. But in terms of storms, uh, I don't know, anything like that, I guess it doesn't really affect me the same um, because I train one on malnutrition for all the years I've been sick, you know, which is not smart, not good. And I try to combat the best I can, but I do train on no water and on very little sleep in order to program my body to be able to handle the effects that I'm going to be sustaining out so I can have the optimal performance and have my body not fluctuate or play those mind games and things on you just to be as um, efficient as I can. So with having my body in line and trained and conditioned the best I can, it really eliminates any of those fears out there because it instills a lot more trust. You now know when to eat. You know how your performance is going to go. If you don't eat, you know, at certain times, you know when you start getting tired and how that affects you and you kind of get grumpy and things like that. So really just managing your water intake, your, your dietary needs while you're out there, and then maximizing as much sleep as you can, it really has eliminated any of the issues that I've had or 
could have out on the water. There are obviously big bad days. You know, you have big water. You've got some really unfortunate circumstances that come. But I think it's just the preparation um, in my eating is really the biggest fear. Am I going to eat? Um, I'm out there in like an eating disorders paradise where it's like, oh, I don't have to eat and yet I can work out all the time and which is terrible, but it's really having to face that type of fear every day. So the ocean stuff to me, I'm like, Ugh, that's nothing compared to the mental aspect of the eating that I have to manage. It's really interesting. I mean, essentially what you're saying is like the biggest battle you have and the biggest fear that you're working with, is it's all that battle within. Like yep. you're saying sharks and 20 waves. foot waves are like, that's not the problem. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's, re- it really drives you in to, to fight this battle. Um, and as far as I've been taught, it's truly the only battle we need to wage is this one within, um, and whatever that is relevant in our own lives. Like we all need to look at that. And so it seems to me that those tendencies are still very much activated within you. The extreme, um, events and the fitness that's required and the dedication that's required and the responsibility that you have for your partner really gives you strength over those tendencies, but you're still coming up against them daily. Is that correct? Yep. Every day, unfortunately. (laughs) So when you say, you said earlier, um, if I can ask, there's food that mentally I cannot, like I cannot eat. I don't know if that was the exact words you used. Can you, can you dig into that a little bit and help us understand what that looks like for you? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so because of my eating disorder, I've had it for, you know, two thirds of my life. So what, 23 years, so a long time, you know, and it's caused, uh, some pretty good damage to my, to, to me. I was also born with some like GI issues. So I have um, a couple stomach conditions where I can eat one thing one day and not have any stomach issues or anything. I can eat the exact same thing the next day and it could make me doubled over in pain and no one knows what causes it. It could um, Most likely it's an allergic um, reaction to either something airborne or on the food or in the food. I mean, it's it's so hard to manage. So I have to take that into account, but that restricts what I can and can't eat because certain foods... Like I can't eat dairy every time that'll make me sick. And sometimes I, you know, I'll have my Froyo on occasion and I pay for it every time, but um, sometimes you just have to do it. Uh, But I can't like eat oils and butters. Um, That will kill my stomach. Um, So it's not, I don't think it's an allergy, but I can't digest it. So it causes problems. But then what I would say the fear food is, it's going to be stuff that I'm not afraid to eat on a normal basis. It's going to be like cookies or cake, things that are again going to make my stomach hurt. But I will eat those on occasion if it's like with a family event or I have to eat something in that realm that I would consider not a healthy food, obviously, in order to keep my mental stability from relapsing. So if I eat my perfectly good diet plan that I should be on every day, if I eat it like that um, consistently, my brain will start changing and I will start becoming afraid of those foods that I don't think are as healthy, like, you know, my peanut M&Ms I love or my red vines uh, or cookies or cake, you know, on occasion, things that, you know, are just like the treats. 
Um, so I have to be very careful because every day I have to eat something of a food like that to mentally keep my brain from regressing and starting, starting to become afraid of those foods. Yet I don't, it keeps it so those aren't, you know, the healthiest options all the time. And it might just be a handful of M&Ms or something, but I kind of have to keep check on that. Otherwise my brain will become afraid of those foods and it will make it really hard and I'll start restricting and things like that again. When you're eating those foods, are you able to enjoy them? Does it feel like, or is there resistance there? Like, oh, I shouldn't be eating that. Like what's the, what's the mental dialogue around it? Now that is, that is something most people don't ask me. So that is really good. Uh, it's both. I would say I really, I love my brownies. I'm not going to lie. I love brownies. I do like cookies. Cake is my favorite, but it is a struggle. I mean, I'll, I'll eat it with the family and my roommate, he loves to get cookies like every week. And I'm like, Hey dude, come on. Like we need to calm down. I can have like one bite, but we're not having cookies every night. Come on. Uh, and so I'll, I'll indulge and have them, but the entire time it is like, okay, well, am I, the, the thoughts I fight are, Hey, do I need to go work out now? I need to work out harder tomorrow. Am I actually going to do it? I never do. But then I get mad at myself because I was like, Oh, I just ate cookies. I've had cookies three nights in a row and now I'm, my diet's just off. And it is, it is a battle of negative, um, conflicting thoughts that I have every single time that I indulge, but I have to. So um, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting challenge that I face. Do sometimes those thoughts, do they sometimes lose their power or are they, are, are sometimes you can look at them and say, oh, that's not very helpful. Or is there a belief that they're, <laughs> I mean, we, we all battle this. I'm not pick, picking on you. I just, I'm so grateful for your generosity to open up about this. I think it's super important. And uh, somebody that works with people in mindset, um, I can tell you it's very common uh, in the athlete world for sure. Um, but over the years in general, do you feel that sometimes those thoughts maybe have lost their power? Because you keep taking action in opposition of those thoughts. So have they lost their hold on you at all? Or do you feel like it's still pretty fertile? Um, I would say they've lost their power a little bit because where years ago, if I would ever even eat like a handful of M&Ms, I was at the gym like an hour later and I was killing myself. Now I'm just like, well, that's unfortunate, Jamie, like don't do it again tomorrow. And then I do it again tomorrow. I'm like, oh, well, I guess we're starting the next day. So it's lost its um, power to an extent. However, it's more or less just my willpower to just be like, hey, I'm not engaging in this. And it just, it kills me on the inside, right? But the entire time, it's just like, you can't react. Like you need to understand like the days that I don't even have an effect from it though would be after, um, if I go train for a week and I have been on my gym plan and everything like that done really well, then I won't stress. But after I come off the ocean for 45 days eating clean how I like to eat um, because I don't, I don't carry snacks and stuff on the boat, I do carry um, M&Ms in my trail mix to make sure I can have that balance every day. So I don't have an issue when I get back to land with fear of food. Um, but when I get back from the boat, I'll start eating more normal stuff again. And uh, it does, it is it's that is the hardest part to get back to normal eating because on the boat I have my regiment. I'm not 
you know, eating extra food. I'm sticking to my schedule where there aren't these additional options that tempt me. And so mentally I do really good. It's coming back. I really, really struggle um, for quite a while uh, just to not beat myself up over eating, you know, normal foods again or allowing that back into my diet. So the boat's a bit of a refuge. It, it is to keep me like how I yeah. want to be, but it also, that's a problem, you know, it's, it's a refuge, but it's also the place where I can let it run rampant if I don't focus on it every single hour I'm awake on that boat. And it's temporary. Yeah, it's temporary. I mean, you're only out there for a set number of days, you know, and it's going to end eventually. And then you're going to have to go back and immerse yourself. You're, your awareness, though, I, something I'm seeing, like <laughs> you, you're, you sound like you're very aware. You have these conversations in your head, and I'm thinking back to like when I first. I can't remember when I first became aware. Do you? Do you? Can you recall when you first became like awake to the conversations or the thoughts, and that they're not really who you are? I would say um, probably when I first recognized it was man, probably when I was about six or seven. Um, and, but that was, it wasn't eating disorder at that time. I didn't get sick till I was starting having those thoughts until I was 12. Uh, didn't realize those thoughts were so awful, I guess, in terms of me being sick until I was 13. But I would say since about, yeah, six or seven, I've always been very aware of who I am, what I think, what I say and do. Um, and then after, getting sick, I'd say about 16, uh, 15 or 16, I became so aware of to the point of that's when I started helping mentor people uh, because I wanted to be a certain person. You know, there are certain traits and qualities um, and attributes that I just love in people. And I wanted to be this perfect person that I dreamt up in my brain. Uh, and so I would start, you know, adapting to have those traits and qualities and become that person. So Every single day, if I started, you know, cussing too much, for example, or if I started using phrases, you know, I was a 90s kid, so like, you know, my sister said like every other word. So anytime I was around that, and if I ever started filtering into my routine and taking me away from the person I wanted to become, I would work to squash that right then and there. So this is a, you know, minute by minute uh, assessment that I do to myself, and it become very, came very aggressive to this extent, probably when I was 15 or 16. Wow. That that's and I, I I don't have the words for it like to just be be aware, but I I figure I feel this translates so well into athletic performance because you need to be uh determined and disciplined enough to get in the sessions and do the necessary work which most people won't and I think you've, you've realized that most people won't uh keep themselves away from the water and try to do a session to train themselves to, to use limited or resources. So let's, can we, can we talk about training? Like what does the training look like? Because if you look at it, you know, we do Ironman endurance events and we never do 10 to 16 hours in one time. That's what the event would be. You did 51 days. You don't go out and train for 51 days every day, every hour. Um, so what is, what does training look like for something like this? No, that's great. Um, so I actually do, so I'm a multi-sport athlete and I specialize in like survival adventure races on land. So 
I train and, you know, in those events, you don't know what you're going to encounter. You could encounter, you're going to have to bike, you're going to have to orienteer, you're going to have to carry stuff, you're going to have to, you know, like kayak, I don't know, rappel. So you kind of just need to know a little of everything. So I train with, you know, I'll wake up at 4am, I'll go to the gym for, you know, like an hour, hour and a half or something like that. And then I go straight to yoga for an hour. And then I'll go do like martial arts or my boxing for an hour. Then I come and work and then usually I go for a run and then a swim at lunch. And then in the afternoon, I go to the gym and do more hard, heavy grinders, heavy weights. And after that, depending on the day, I'll either do, um, most of the time it's yoga right now, or it'll be rock climbing on the weekends. I have one day dedicated to very long hikes uh, or training like of that sector. Um, it might be rucking uh, when I get into the heavy, heavy parts of my training and then the other day is de- dedicated to I wake up and do my boxing for two hours. I go to hot yoga for an hour and a half. And then I go to Mar- uh, Muay Thai for like an hour or something. And then I go for a hike um, or a bike ride or something. So I try and fill and maximize my time. But that's it's very regimented in the sense of I make sure to do climbing twice a week. I make sure to do you know martial arts or boxing just to get like the speed and agility. Um, since that's really important to work on those fast twitch muscles and keep those active, I do that you know for at least you know seven or eight hours a week. And then I do strength training um, about oh, was that seven eight hours a week. Heavy. Then I do like heavy cross training, like almost uh, CrossFit style without Olympic lifts and without the necessary heavy heavy weights. I do that about you know six or seven hours a week. Uh, then I run or do other cardio for five to six hours a week. Um, so it's really just trying to break down those things and depending on what I'm focusing on, um, coming up for a row. All those things keep you fit. You know, a lot of rowers, uh, if you want to row to win, they will hire like trainers to try to make sure that they get their cadence right. They will sit on, you know, ergs for, you know, four, four hours at a time. And you're lucky if I'm on a rower for an hour a week, (laughs) because I just, I mean, my, my butt's going to get conditioned once I get on the water, my hands get conditioned by using the heavy weights. Like it's not because it, it gives you the calluses and things that you're not going to get sitting on an erg. Um, it's not the necessarily the same rowing um, style that you're going to get on our boat. So to me, it is very helpful if you want to perfect certain things. But my cadence is already, you know, I row, you know, 32 strokes a minute, which is, which is very quick. Um, and that's just natural, you know, cause I'm just, I, I don't know, for some reason I can just push and, ex, um, and exert that amount of energy to do it because it's easier for my lungs. Um, so I think that's where the counterbalance is. But so my training is a little bit different where I focus on all the things. Um, so when I get out there, I'm, and then like right before I go on a row, I go dance again, cause I love dancing, but I'll start doing like my aerial, um, aerial, uh, dance, like my silks. I'll get back into like ballet or jazz or just like ballroom dancing or something. Cause that works even more, um, specialized fine tuning muscles because the more muscles that you have, this is my theory, the more muscles you have, the more work you've done on all of the stabilizer muscles, on all of the different muscle groups that you have when you get out there, you can use them as backup when your you know, back is too tired. You're going to have to use secondary, you know, tertiary muscle groups in order to pull you through and along. And so you have enough energy as a resource. Once your body becomes uh, catabolic and starts eating away, you're going to want to have as much as you can to use as fuel later on. So I try to just make it as strong 
in every aspect possible. So that way I just have more energy and more resources to utilize after the duration, you know, the, the extended duration that I'm out there. So I was going to say, after all of that, the amount of actual rowing that takes place, what is that? So you gave the hours for the week of everything that you do. What are the hours of actual rowing that you do? You might get an hour. (laughs) A week? Yeah. I don't row. I don't row a lot um, because my back, I do so much like back lifting. I do so much stuff like that. And I do so much cardio that it doesn't ever, rowing never makes me tired out on the water because you can only row so fast. You know, like I row, I row really quick, but you go slow, you know? So as long as you're working those muscle groups, I do it in like a high intensity, almost like a CrossFit style workout. So I'm still getting the cardiovascular um, ability from it while building the strength and stuff, which is a simulation of at least using the same muscle groups, what I'm going to be using on the water. I'm just not sitting on a erg. (laughs) So, and and also you get fit from the day after day. So you're getting fit in the first 10 to 20 days that you're on the water. You're actually adapting to that, to that pattern, which you actually built the foundation for with all these other, uh, all these other exercises that you've been doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of out of the box is that, or is it not out of the box? Cause I don't know this, I don't know this sport. Is that out of the box or is that normal? It is. It, uh, it is not recommended. It is not the recommended training program. <laughs> I love the <laughs> However, honesty. I mean, yeah, it's usually like, hey, you need to be rowing and you can go run. And I'm just like, mm, well, I, I get that. But at the same time, I'm the only rower. You know, when I first did the Atlantic race, uh, they were so worried about my diet. I almost didn't get to go row because they've never had anyone have to make their own food. And having someone with an eating disorder, like we don't know, you know, they didn't know anything about that to what that's going to look like getting across. And uh, I lost the least amount of weight that they've seen, um, which was eight pounds. And then when we just did the Atlantic Ocean, uh, I lost only four pounds after 45 days. And so, the, I mean, it's average you lose anywhere between 15 and 20 pounds. You know, some people lose, you know, 30 plus pounds. It just depends. But where in my body, I keep it trained at this level. You know, I mean, if I'm training six to eight hours a day on the boat, you're rowing anywhere from like 12 to 16 hours a day, but it's not quite the, as high intensity as what I'm used to training at. So it almost... I'm almost at a balance where my body is just 100% efficient when I'm out there. So I don't have a lot of weight to lose. Um, I know how much it takes to fuel my body when I get into this amount of um, expenditure. So it just makes it so I'm at a more consistent basis since I train so hard normally out there. I, it just kind of it just works. So for me, I know they don't love it, but at the same time, because I've been able to not hardly lose and have any changes, you know, physically it really, you know, and my diet, that's the big thing is, you know, they're really focused on the food that I eat and how I break down my macros and micros. Um, and when I eat to make sure I'm as efficient as I am for the performance that I'm able to exert, that's kind of, you know, they're, they've started changing their tune that, Hey, you know, maybe this it's different, but clearly she's making it work, you know, because, um, I have such good results by the end of the races. It's almost like you're, it's almost like you have transmuted this battle that you are still in to this high level of proficiency and achievement in this sport. It's pretty wild, like because that 
part of you has driven you to become so calculated and really um, a master of your nutrition, you may just be doing it better than other people. And and so interesting how, and I get it too, you know, people people will get scared of something like that. Like, whoa, God, I don't, because they care about you. We care, we care about each other. That's our, our nature is caring. Like, I don't want anything to happen to her. And, um, and you're proving that wrong time and and again, that it needs to look a certain way. And in fact, that you have a, a really good handle on it. So we're looking at caloric intake, you know, what, because you got to carry all this stuff. It's not like there's like a boat out there. You're going to be able to go shopping. You got to carry food. Do you always know, you know, how long the, I'm sure you do, like have some kind of idea of how long the project's going to take. And then do you plan for more days just in case? And how much, like what kind of calorie intake does it take to be on the oars that long every day during, during an event? So that's really great. Um, let's see. Atlantic Campaigns, they have a formula. They have a formula spreadsheet where you have to put in what you currently weigh and it will spit out. These are roughly the amount of calories you're going to need that we're saying every day to perform these this feat and to you know, make it across the water. And you can usually say you know, 3,000 miles for you know, a two-man team is going to take upwards of 60 days. You know, like you know, anywhere between 45 and 60 days uh, if you're out there, you know, same with the Atlantic. So for like, I've been on two man teams. So we had to take four, 65 days worth of food. Um, 55 days of that had to be, you know, that your normal eating food and stuff. And then, uh, well, 52 days and then 13 days, um, cause it's a percentage, 13 days of that had to be wet food, which means if your water maker goes out or if you can't eat, you know, and stuff like that, the other food you have, it's food you don't need to have with water or add to it to, you know, so you can just eat it ready to go. Uh, and so our, for me and what I weigh and stuff, my daily caloric intake is like 4,000 calories is what they anticipate. Um, in the heart of my training at home, you know, I'm eating anywhere, you know, between 5,000 and 5,500 calories a day. Uh, so out on the water, you know, 4,000 calories, cause you're not exerting, you are exerting a lot, but you're not cause it's, you can only row, like I said, so fast, but you have to take in the elements, you know, the sun, the dehydration, the exhaustion, like everything you're putting your body through for how it's burning in that element instead of necessarily the exertion amount um, into effect. And so I've got 4,000 calories I'm supposed to eat every day. And I think I eat uh, 2,500 to 3,000. I don't, I don't eat all of it. I always come back with food. Um, And most people come back with food. Usually the first 10 days I take um, a ton of fruit, like fresh fruit, because you're not going to get it for a while. So I'll have, you know, apples, mainly apples and bananas. And then I'll eat trail mix and protein bars. I won't touch any of the actual meals for the first 10 days just because you got to get your body acclimated to being able to eat like that with the exertion. You need something quick that can just fuel you. And, um, you you know, some people have motion sickness and stuff. So just to kind of combat that, I do stuff that's very easy that's easy to digest, that's easy to eat, you know, so I can get the maximum amount of sleep possible until I'm into a routine where my body's not in such a shock factor. And after 10 days, then I start getting into the dehydrated meals and I eat those. Um, But again, I kind of, I eat them based on the time of day, how tired I am, what my exertion kind of has been, what we've been encountering. So I kind of switch up when I eat different things throughout the day. 
uh, just to maximize that energy level and stuff. Um, and it really seems to work, but you really have to be on top of it uh, because it, it does, it ca can cause some, some issues when you're out on the water. What, uh, what about the, the switch back and forth? Because you're, you, if you're with a partner, you guys aren't rowing at the same time, correct? Not on a two-man team. So on a two-man team, you have one person sleeping while the other person rowing is most likely how it's going to go. If you're trying to race to win, you know, you both, both might be on the oars at the same time if it's like ideal conditions and you can just speed through it. Or, you know, if it's really bad water, you, you know, to try to get out, you have to, you might have to both be on the oars to muscle through something at certain times. But for the majority of it, one person's on and one person's off. Um, and it's usually a rotation of two hours on the oars and two hours off the oars at a time. Um, unless you encounter certain things like we changed that, we changed it up so many times out there. Uh, great plan to start with, but you have to adapt as you encounter different things. Um, and so that's the other thing, you know, is, you know, taking that amount of food, my teammate Owen for this last row, he had to have like, I think around 6,000 calories a day. And so, I mean, just to be able to house that much food for 65 days each, it fills, I mean, we had it in most of our storage compartments, um, you know, the extra food just because it takes up so much space. Uh, and then obviously it, you, you eat through it. So it gets lighter and lighter and stuff like that. Um, but the next one that we do, the circumnavigation, right now we have a team of three and, you know, two of them, I mean, we're going to have the Indian Ocean will be somewhere we're estimating around 60 days. Uh, we've estimated around 60 days for all legs of it just to, you know, have a little bit of cushion. So we're going to be taking, um, yeah, about 60 days worth of food on all of the legs. So it's going to be a lot of food. Um and it's just going to be interesting on how you manage that because right now a three-person rotation is a little different. Um, and I've never done that. I'm going to have to share a cabin. There's just a lot of other things you have to think about because when you're trying to make your food, you're trying to optimize sleep, you're trying to row, trying to get off the oars and find out how you can eat. You know, you have to kind of set up that and pre-plan before you get on the oars. And when you get after the oars, so you're constantly having to think about that in advance to make sure it's all set up, ready to go when you're done so you can be as efficient as possible and the more people you have, obviously, the more things you kind of have to work around. So it'll be interesting. Uh, with a teammate, it, for sure, two-man, a lot easier. Uh, the more teammates you have, I've never done it. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> gosh. And, and this, is the biggest, this is the biggest project you've done, the biggest event you've done. This will be, this will be the biggest, yeah, because it's never been attempted before. Um, and I really wanted to do it. Cause I'm like, I want to retire. I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> I mean, as you can imagine, um, but also just the, what we can do with our charities, you know, over the years when I started doing this, I never thought I'd be to the level that I'm at. I never thought I'd be rowing oceans and I never thought I'd be good at that, be good at it one. <clears throat> so um, it's been really nice to have that transition, you know, and progression over time to see how that's just unfolded, but it's all been in hopes to be able to, essentially make a name for who I am uh, and what I do for eating disorders so I can grow that business and really help people all over the world. So this last one that we're doing, the first one, I raised money for eating disorders. Uh, the second one that I just did for eating disorders again, and we've um, gotten several clients from that, which is really great. And you just got a lot of more recognition because, you know, people really want to try and they know about it now. They're really trying to help, you know, get the awareness out there um, for all the people that are struggling since it's still a pretty 
not spoken about um, disorder um, realm, you know, in that mental uh, health space. And so this one, we're really trying to make a push uh, for all of our charities. But my push would be to really just see what we can do to try to make the biggest difference possible. And I have to do that by leading through example. You know, I, I'm not going to go out there and be like, oh, yeah, I think this is great. You know, this is a good treatment program and not do it myself, you know. So the more I push myself, the more education and knowledge I have to be able to help people wherever they're at in life and wherever they want to go, you know, whether they're going to hit these obstacles. So I try to put myself in like extreme situations in order to gain that knowledge so I can be the best resource when I help these people. So describe this next extreme <laughs> adventure that you're having because you've kind of bounced around it. But for our audience, like what does, what is this entailing? What, what are you going after? Yeah, so the next event, uh, our team is called Koakai. Uh, it's a team of three. Uh, currently, Dingo Dominguez, Paul Lohr, and myself. We are looking for a fourth person. Uh, and what we're doing is we are going to do a circumnavigation of the world rowing. So we will start um, next spring. Hopefully in June is what I'm targeting since I have a world record attempt right before that. Uh, and we're going to start in um, Geraldton, Australia. And we're going to row to Grand Bray, uh, Mauritius, which is an island outside of Africa, which is about 3,100 miles. And then we'll get there probably around August, September, get the boat out of the water, get it reinspected, make sure we get it restocked and supplied. We're going to ship it over to uh, the Canary Islands. We're going to row from there over to Florida um, to do the Atlantic. And we'll do that in December and we'll probably arrive in uh, late January, early February. And that's of 25. And then we'll, again, get the boat out, restock it, reinspect it. And then we'll drive it across the country to Monterey, California, where we'll participate in the um, Atlantic Campaign's Pacific Challenge, which is what I just did. And we'll row to uh, Kauai for the first leg. And we'll restock and we'll only be there like a day or two. And then we'll continue on to um, Karen's Australia. So it'll be roughly 12,000 miles um, that we're going to do from coast to coast to coast, back to back to back. Yeah. So there's no like, okay, see you guys in three months. Like I'll meet you in Monterey. <laughs> you're you're like with the boat, you're driving the boat. So not only are you rowing 12,000 miles, but like you're, you're restocking, you're cleaning, you're tending to her, uh, you're driving her across the country. Um, and so it's this, it's a continuous, so including all of this, like getting across the country, um, getting the, the boat, you know, to the Canary Islands, what is the full time span of all of it, not just the rowing? Uh, the full time span uh, is going to be a year and a half. So we're expecting it to be wow. 200 days roughly on the water. And with all the time in between, it will be, um, we'll start probably hopefully in June or late May of 24, and we'll finish in October of 25. Wow. That's, 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 a, that's, that's, can we agree? Like, do you agree? Yeah, is this, that's, is this epic? Has anybody attempted it? <laughs> no one has ever, no one's ever even done back-to-back -back oceans. And that's what we were originally going to do. And I'm like, why not? Let's do all three. So I luckily talked to my teammates into it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's never been done. Um, so we've got a lot of eyes on us um, because of how, what we're looking at is, is extreme. Um, and I don't want to underplay that. It, there's a lot of logistics 
there's a lot of situations that we have to really be accounting for. Recovery time is not very much in between. Um, Paul Lohr, the one teammate, he has actually rowed both oceans with me. Um, that's how I met him. He was on a different team in 2021 for the Atlantic. And then he rode this year in the Pacific again with me on a different team though. Uh, so we got him on board and Dingo has, um, I know him from endurance events, like through Spartan and stuff. And so that's how we met. And so it's just, um, yeah, he's never rode an ocean though. So we've got some, you know, education that's coming up. He's going to learn really quickly. You know, Paul and I, we've never done the Indian. So that's going to be new for us. And just the communication, that number of days on the water, it's about time away from your family when you're home, like trying to focus on how we're going to restock, how we're going to get inspected by the certain timeframes to get it shipped. And, uh, it's, it's going to be really tight. And, um, it's going to be about one of the one of the biggest events in history for endurance where so we're we're excited or a little nervous but uh yeah <laughs> we'll see how it goes <laughs> and how is this requiring like others to support you what what do you need from people who are listening right now that's like oh my gosh i want to support this what do you, what is it that you need uh, we, to, to do this, it's going to cost us $180,000. So we need funding for it. Um, a lot of people donate because, you know, you want your, you want your name on the boat, you know, cause it's a big marketing thing. Um, and just because of the realm of how big it is, you know, people, we have some people like gear companies are like, we want to be a part of this, right? We want, we want our names to help this happen since it's never been done in history. So there are some gear that we're going to need. We need help like in terms of getting like funding for shipping, uh, lodging when we go to these places, you know, um, so we can have a place to stay because that helps with cost. So really anything in terms of that. And then our charities, you know, we really, that's our big thing is we are raising money for four charities, uh, like you said previously, and uh, Eating Disorder Awareness, um, which is Bear Moose Hideaway, which is my foundation. We have Penny's Flight, which is a cancer foundation. Um, we have canine for warriors, which is, um, service dogs that get trained for military veterans. Uh, and then we have the wounded warrior project, which is, you know, helping support wounded, um, soldiers over in combat and their families. So our big thing there is also just trying to raise as much money to make a difference for these people that we can. So I guess that's what we need. We just, and we want followers. We want people to follow and want to learn about what we're doing um, because it is really neat. And we really just want, you know, to bring, in America, ocean rowing is not a big thing. I mean, it's very small amount of people who have ever rowed the ocean in America. Total, I think there's like 1,300 people in the history that have rowed oceans. So it's not a very big community, but we really want to bring that awareness out there. Like, hey, this is here. It is really cool. Look at what's possible in terms of just another endurance sport that's out there and what's possible if, you know, if you want to put your mind to something, I mean, clearly you can do it. Well, how do they, what are the, what are the handles to follow? Like, so someone's like, oh my God, like I want to, I want to track them. I want to find out what's the best way to, to follow you guys. Uh, Best way to follow us would be our Facebook and Instagram, which everything um, right now it's um, team Koa Kai. Uh, and then all of our individual Facebook and, um, uh, social medias, Instagram, uh, those are all great as well. We have a website, which is teamkoakai.com that goes live, I think Friday. So that's really exciting. 
Uh, and then we will have, we've teamed up with YB Tracker, uh, Yellow Brick. Um, they do all of the boat rows that we've done. They do most of the boat rows and uh, different events like that, sailing. And you'll be able to see our progress as we, where we're at on every single leg of every single trip, how many days it, our estimation of arrival, how far we're rowing, how fast we're rowing. Uh, so it's really fun to follow. And um, so we'll have that as well. So once we get up and running right before the row, we'll announce that and people can follow our journey live while we're out on the water. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. We'll put links to all this stuff, links to all the, um, the nonprofits and the, and the causes that you're raising money for. But I wanted to ask you as we close out our time together, what would you like to say to somebody who's listening to this, who, who is really struggling, who's in that battle, who is trying fiercely to overcome this relationship they have with food and their body and image and the battle in their minds, what would you like to say to them? Oh man, uh, gosh, I would like to say so many things, but I think my biggest thing is just that, you know, not to give up and like that you can find someone out there, you know, reach out to me, reach out to your parents, reach out to a friend, let someone know you're struggling, you know, and there is help available. Uh, and hopefully that, you know, it's not, people just need to know that you don't have to be, you know, succumb to that lifestyle. You know, that's not a death sentence. You know, there are ways to get better despite how hopeless it feels. You know, there are resources. So please just reach out and ask for help and, and get help because, you know, you can clearly do anything you put your mind to. So, uh, I, yeah, just, just reach out if you need help. Yeah, I love that. Um, Tell us a little bit, one more question. Tell us a little bit about the boat. Like how big is this boat that you're going to be in for 12,000 miles with two other people? <laughs> uh, um, well, I know, the, I know the dimensions of a two-man boat, which is like uh, 21 feet long. Uh, the the four-man boat that we're going to be on is a Rannick uh, R45. And I think it's something like uh, 26, 25 feet long. So it's not very long. It's about five feet wide, roughly. Um, and it's got, you know, a desalinator on it, which is how we convert the ocean water into drinking water. A lot of sailboats use that, you know. We have, you know, uh, lithium-ion batteries because we have solar panels on both of the ends. So it charges all our navigation systems. It charges, you know, uh, the water maker. It helps so we can, you know, charge our phones and different things like that. Uh, we will have, you know, three rowing stations aboard, you know, at all times. So if we needed, all three of us could row. If we get a fourth person, we're hoping, like I said, we'll see if anyone's interested. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and then um, let's see, each cabin, the bow has a lot of storage underneath it. And then you can like, I can like lay flat in it, like head to toe. That's about as big as it is. And then in the stern, that's where all of our navigation is. So you got your chart plotters, you got your VHF radios, uh, satellite phones. Um, so yeah, it's it's not a very big vessel, but it is very um, smart. It's very uh, very uh, high tech uh, in terms. They're built to self ride. So if you flip over, they're built to come back up as long as you have like the doors um, locked like you're supposed to and stuff like that. So it doesn't fill with water. But yeah, they're they're very impressive boats. Uh, they're not just a canoe, I promise. They're a little bit more advanced. <laughs> a little bit more advanced than that. I have one more question because you kind of just it. dropped it. Just to, you're going for a, a record, like the primer for this big event. What is this record that you're going for? 
I will be the only female in the history of the world to do have done it, to have circumnavigated in a rowboat. Back to back to back, I guess. <laughs> All right. Very cool. All right. And if anybody's interested in being the fourth rower, uh, please contact Jamie oh, directly. <laughs> does it have to be the same four people for the whole journey or can you have people? Yep. We're in? allowing it for legs. So right now the three of us, we are the s- standard three. So if we find a fourth person who wants to do all of it with us, great. If not, they can pick the legs that they want to do or what's going to work best for their time frame or their skill set because each ocean's different. Um, so yeah, we are taking anyone that wants to do it. Uh, if they want to do one leg or all of it, great. We're, we're all for it. Hey, listen up endurance community, <laughs> listening to the Yogi Trathy podcast. You guys, we've done some pretty big things. This would be probably the biggest ever. Yeah. And all you have to do is row for an hour a week. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> do some exactly. yoga, do some mountain. No mount. <laughs> and then fill the, the remaining seven hours with other training. Uh, no, this is incredible. Wow. I mean, what a high level that you have taken this, this transmutation of pain to purpose. So bravo, like incredible, Jamie, just absolutely incredible. Uh, we're so grateful for your time today to be connected with you, to know that we've been on the ocean with you. It's quite amazing. And um, we'll be with you uh, throughout this whole thing. So just so happy to connect and, um, yeah, we'll be, we'll continue to follow. Wonderful. No, thank you guys for having me. You guys will definitely be on the boat for the next one. And, uh, yeah, I guess your listeners, I guess the more people you get on your show, like please get more content. Cause we're going to have you guys every day out there. So please, we just, we really thank you guys because it really means a lot and people don't really understand when you're out there in isolation, the things that make you get through things. And uh, this podcast is is one of those things. So for your listeners, uh, I hope they know the, the amazing, amazing opportunity that you guys are giving people. So I, I thank you guys for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank, thank you. you so much. We really appreciate it. So good to have you here. 